Let's turn together, please, to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is, as I said to you earlier in our, the beginning of our communion time, Psalm 51 is one of the psalms of, of penitence. It's, it's one of the songs of, of repentance. These psalms are, as I've also said, a subset of the psalms of lament. We are working through the psalms this summer, not in sequence, because obviously we don't have 150 weeks this summer, but we're starting to work through them thematically. The elders haven't spent a lot of time talking about this, but I sort of anticipate that in the coming summers we'll continue this, and it's a good way for us to go because our typical course of, of teaching here is to work verse by verse, verse through entire books of the Bible. But in the summer, a lot of people are gone. I mean, people are just traveling all over the place, and so we're, we're missing people sometimes for weeks at a time, and it's hard for them to come back in, and I can't spend 30 minutes every single Sunday rebuilding context for what people have missed. So the Psalms are great because they allow us to do sort of one-off teaching times, but still preach expositionally, verse by verse, through chapters of the Bible. But also for where we are as a church, we're trying to, to help you as worshipers find a voice for your various seasons of life. We began by introducing the Psalms in Psalm 1, which is indeed a gateway for the rest of the Psalms, commending to our attention the reading and meditation upon the Psalms. We then moved into some Psalms which focused upon the character of God, which focused us in on who He is and praise and thanksgiving. We have spent the last number of weeks working through some of the psalms of lament. This will be review for several of you, but as we have said, about a third of the psalms are psalms of lament. And as we have also said, that is significant because it indicates that life is hard. For the psalms of lament, if that word is not familiar to you or often used in your vocabulary, the psalms of lament are for people in trouble. And ever since the fall of mankind, our world has been in trouble. We are in trouble because the world is in rebellion against God. It, it fell from harmony with its creator. Adam and Eve were the first and only couple to have perfect harmony with God and with each other. So let's think about that for just a moment. They were at perfect peace with their creator and with each other. There was absolute harmony in all of their relationships. They had never known a second of anxiety. They had never been afraid. They had never been prideful, lustful. They never doubted. They were never scared of anything. Life for them was perfect. It never even occurred to them to think it couldn't be. But God warned them that if they fell, if they rebelled against his law, that they would die. And as soon as they ate from the fruit of the tree, that's exactly what happened. Now, not organically, their lungs still processed oxygen and carbon dioxide. The synapses of their brain still fired. The chambers of their heart still beat as they should. But they died in the sense that they fell from grace. They fell from their perfect communion with God, and then everything became a bit shadowy and dark. Fear, anxiety, and trouble entered into the world. And ever since, we have been dealing 
with the fallout. The fallout of a world that is not in harmony with God. A fallout of a world that is in rebellion against Him. So very often we are dealing with the sins of those around us. Not just of humanity generally, but of of individuals around us. We have dealt, most of us, with the sins of our parents. Sins of our neighbors, our siblings, loved ones. The sins of those we don't even know whose decisions affect us locally, nationally, and globally. It doesn't take very long to look into the cycles of news in our world, whether national, domestic, or international, and see that this world is a broken place. Whether it's racial disharmony, as we talked about last week, Terrorism, as we saw once again tragically in France this week, this world is broken, and we deal with its brokenness. But if we're being honest, we don't even have to look nationally, globally. All we have to do is look within. And we realize that sin not only has affected and infected like a noxious disease, the hearts of all men and women, it has infected ours. So to put it very simply, I sin a lot. You sin a lot. That should be self-evident, but in some senses that that shocks us to, to say it out loud. We, we sin a lot, far more often than we would fail to admit, and frankly, far more often than we even realize very often. We sin in big ways, and we sin in small ways. We sin externally, we sin internally. If we're being honest, most of the sins that we commit, most people don't even see. They go on internally, but they do separate us in one way or another from our Creator. Even if we are newly related to Him, even if we have been restored to Him, reconciled to Him by Christ, our our sin separates us from Him relationally, and therefore repentance is necessary And therefore, once again, in God's great providence and goodness, he has given us a voice for those times. Psalm 51 is a high-level sin psalm. You will see the superscription at the top before verse 1. This is a psalm of David, which he gave to the choir master. Therefore, this would have been sung nationally. And the occasion is when Nathan the prophet came to him after he, David, had gone into Bathsheba. The story is from 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And so this is a psalm for repentance out of the story that we see in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. So let's turn there together briefly before we spend the bulk of our time in Psalm 51. David was not the first king of Israel, but he was the first good king of Israel. The first king of Israel, Saul, had been a pretty miserable failure. 
in his pride and autonomy, he had sought his own way, and God, after a time, deposed him, setting up David instead on the throne. David, though imperfect, was a man, as the scriptures say, after God's own heart. But David himself was tragically flawed. Most of you know the story, but let's look at some of the highlights. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now, most theologians, most scholars would say that David was not fulfilling his responsibilities. He should have been out to battle with his army. Instead, verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch, was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And let's pause there for just a moment. We know from elsewhere that Uriah was one of David's 30 most trusted warriors. He was in the inner circle of David's court. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. David is in trouble here. David put himself in this situation. The scholars are right. David had abdicated his kingly leadership responsibilities. He had become restless. He had become bored. He had set himself up to deny his pleasures in God, what he knew would ultimately satisfy him, and he went looking. He went seeking And sure enough, the evil one and David's own sin led him to the point where he considered something which would have been unthinkable perhaps days or months before, that he would commit adultery. And if you know the rest of the story, after he finds out that Bathsheba is pregnant, Uriah comes home, he tries to get Uriah to go be with his wife and to have sexual relations with her to be able to cover up this pregnancy. But Uriah, out of great commitment to God and to David, his military leader, his king, he won't go in and do that. And so the only way David finds that he can cover up this heinous sin of adultery and now horrible deceit and coveting another man's wife is he tells Joab, the primary military leader within Israel, save David, to put Uriah in the front lines and then to withdraw from him and leave him alone and he will be killed, effectively murdering him. And so David's sins start stacking on top of one another. In chapter 12, Nathan, who is very close to David, the prophet, comes into him. In verse 1, we find... But he came to him and said to him, to David, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb. 
prepared it for the man who had come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Some of the most famous words in the Old Testament, verse 7. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes, and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. In other words, very publicly. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, this child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. This is the context in which we find Psalm 51. David sinned largely. It was a big one. But this psalm is not just for the big ones, like adultery. What are some other big ones? Thievery. Big lies that turn into bigger lies and big cover-ups. It's also for the small stuff, the stuff that is internal. And I think it's also for maybe specifically the times where we have grown hard against God. If you think about the timeline, the chronology of David's sin with Bathsheba and the Nathan coming to David, it had to have been that David had, had held this sin secret, seeking desperately to cover it up for at least a number of months. It seems as though Bathsheba was close to delivering this child when Nathan came to David. So from the outset of David's sin to when Bathsheba got pregnant, to bringing Uriah back to Jerusalem, to having him effectively murdered, to the time when Nathan came to David and then the baby was born. David was wandering from God, running from him willfully, stacking sin upon sin with a hard heart for at least a number of months. And whether it's big stuff, stuff which would, would really assassinate our character, or whether it's just a lot of little stuff, internal stuff, subtle stuff, which leads us away from having a tender heart toward God to the point that maybe like David, we are bored with God. Our hearts are far from Him. We feel distant from Him. This psalm is, is helpful for those times. Maybe there's not a character assassinating sin in our track record. But perhaps we are so far from him that we feel like we aren't even related to him anymore. If we're being honest, we've all been there. Most of us have not committed adultery. 
Most of us have not committed sins which would put us in the penitentiary. Most of us have not committed sins which would have us removed from a church. But most of us at one time or another have been so far from God that we feel like we aren't even related to him anymore. We, we know in our heads that we're sons or daughters, but we certainly don't sense it. We don't feel it. This psalm is for all those times. Maybe you come today like that. No matter what state you find yourself in, even if you find yourself properly related to God today with a clean heart, this is one for you as well, for Times are coming whenever you will need this psalm to give you a voice for repentance. So let's read it together. This is the word of the Lord. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. May the Lord bless to us the reading of his word. I'm going to give you a simple outline today which will help us understand the content of this psalm and help lead you perhaps even today into repentance But I do encourage you to jot the things down that I'm going to put in front of you so that you can tuck this away for future times. For again, whether you find yourself in harmony with God today or not, you will need a psalm like this to help lead you to repentance in days to come. It has been said, and I've said this before, it's not original with me, that we are once regenerate, that is to say, born again. We are once regenerate, but always repenting. In other words, you don't have to be justified, saved, rescued again and again and again. Christ has been sacrificed once for all, raised to new life. And therefore, if our faith is in him, for the gospel is very simply, Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. He was punished not for his law-breaking, 
but for ours. He died, he was buried, and he rose again. That is the good news in kernel form. The good news is that Jesus died for sinners, and he rose to new life to conquer sin and its consequence of death. And if you will trust him, not just believing certain things about him, but if you will stake your claim on him, if you will trust him, if you will rest in him, then his righteousness will be applied to you. The good news is that you don't have to be punished for your sin. God must punish sin, but that's why Jesus died, to take your punishment for you. And if you will trust him, your iniquity, your iniquity will be removed, your penalty will be pardoned, and you might find new life. If you are here today seeking to establish your own righteousness, to buy God off with your good works, stop your futile efforts. It will not lead to life. Only Jesus can give you life. Trust him today. But even after having done so, most of us having done so, years ago, we still sin. Therefore, we need psalms like us, like this, those of us who are regenerate, to lead us into consistent repentance. First of all, in verses 1 through 2, David helps us understand that we must plead for forgiveness. Now, I do not mean by this that you have to beg God over and over and over again with words of incantation. That is not what David is teaching us here. When I use the word plead here, what I mean is this comes from a heart which is in desperate need, but from a heart that believes that God meets those who are desperate. That's what I mean by pleading. I don't really mean begging as though you doubt God will do it. I mean that you must come to him in humility, but in humble expectation. David asks for mercy that punishment will not be meted out against him. And he bases this in confidence upon the character of God. For God's character is known to be one of steadfast love. He never turns away from this. He is loyal, always. And God is abundant in mercy. Some of your translations may say compassionate. So because God is loyal in love, never-endingly, and because God is compassionate, He not only knows that we have sinned, He knows that we will sin. And therefore we hold two truths in tension, and we better be careful to hold them in proper tension or they become very dangerous. The first truth is this. Sin is inevitable. The second truth is this. God hates sin. Sin is inevitable, on the one hand, but God hates sin, on the other. Therefore, because God is loyal in love, because he is compassionate, 
He knows that we will sin. And yet, he hates it. And we should hate it too. Our God is holy. And he calls us to be holy. But we often aren't. And so David cries out for mercy. He pleads for mercy. And he does this with humble expectation based upon the character of God. And therein we find the gospel. We sang together a bit ago, before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is written on his heart. My name is written on his hands. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. In other words, in the the words of the old hymn writer, because Jesus pleads his merits before the Father, we can always have confidence that we will be forgiven. So even right now, for those of us who have trusted Christ, who believe that our standing before God is based exclusively on the merits of Jesus, he intercedes for us. The Father will not accept you because you are internally righteous. The Father accepts you because of the righteousness of Jesus. But he wants us to live righteously. Though our standing before him as sons and daughters is not based upon our inherent righteousness because we don't have any, yet after having the righteousness of Jesus credited to us, we are to live righteously. David knew that he had not. He had failed big time. Most of us sitting here today have not recently failed big time. But we fail all the time. And sometimes those sins compound. We stop repenting consistently and our hearts grow cold toward him whether it's low-level stuff or big-level stuff. An independent sin or a compendium of them, we can come to Him based upon the merits of Jesus who is full of steadfast love, who is full of compassionate mercy, and we can ask that our transgressions will be blotted out. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 2 that every transgression that we have ever committed And the penalty for them were nailed to the cross of Jesus. One of the most beautiful pictures that Paul ever gives in his description of salvation. This means that the handwriting of offenses that are written out, that is to say, the list of every sin that you and I have or ever will commit, the big stuff that people see, the little stuff that are only between us and God. Every single one. Every lie. Every word of slander or gossip. Every prideful thought. Every jealous inclination. Every lustful second look. Ever, every greedy scheme. All of them. Big, small, God has imputed to Jesus. The gospel is not fair. 
Jesus has our sins imputed or credited to him. And in return, for those of us who trust him, we get his grace, his righteousness imputed, credited back to us. The gospel is not fair. The gospel is sheer grace. And because of this, David can cry out to God because of the one who would come from his family line, Jesus Christ, that God would show him mercy, would blot out his transgressions from the record. And David asks in verse 2 that he will be cleansed in every single way. Sin soils us. Sin poisons us. Sin is like a blot in our lives that God looks at and is displeased with. This is why the world, at least the world surrounding Jerusalem when Jesus was crucified, was turned to darkness as though it was the dead of night. For God's wrath was being poured out on Jesus because of the sins that he bore in our place. This is why the Father could not gaze upon the Son. This is why the Son cries out to the Father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus bore the sins of many, things he never would have committed that we might come back to God. The blackness of sin and iniquity, the wrath of God poured out on him so that we might plead with him, the one full of steadfast love and compassionate mercy, to blot out our transgressions and to cleanse us from all iniquity. So we plead for forgiveness with humble hearts. You should do this all the time. You should have an ongoing conversation with God that your sins will be forgiven. Every lustful thought should be confessed. Every prideful inclination should be confessed. This means that probably all day long you'll be praying. That's good for you. For you need the presence of God at all times. You need his help, but you also need consistent restoration. How many times have you sinned already today, if you're being honest? Now, I suspect that nobody committed adultery today. But I suspect most of us have been prideful today. I suspect most of us have neglected to worship God rightly already today. I suspect that in one way or another, most of us have failed to love those around us already today. What do you do when you recognize this? Do you dismiss it as though it's not a big deal? Or do you see that even the slightest sin is an offense against the grandeur and kingship of our Creator? So we must plead for forgiveness, frankly, all the time but an expectation that he will constantly, faithfully forgive. God is never more glorified than when his grace is treasured and accepted. And so I call you brother and sister, whether you are close to him now or perhaps because of a compendium of sin far from him to cry out and he will forgive. In verses 3 through 6, David leads us to the conclusion that we must be thoroughly honest about our sins. David is specific. He talks about his transgressions and his sin. He talks about his iniquity 
He admits in verse 5 that he came into the world that way. David sinned because he was a sinner. So all of us were born into sin. We call this original sin. Adam's sin was imputed to the race. It was credited to the race. It came down to us as his progeny. David was the head of the race, and David failed. And every son of David, every son of Adam, every daughter of Eve, we are born into this world as sinners. We lie because we're liars. We are prideful because we are proud. We are selfish because we have selfish hearts. We worship self because we want to be the king of the universe. David is specific here. And he is thoroughly honest. He doesn't hold back. This is one of the arguments for consistent repentance. In other words, if you are far from God for a period of time, it's hard to remember all the things that you've done. Now, I want to assure you that in those times, even if you don't remember every single sin, he will still forgive. But notice how specific David is here. He says in verse 3, he knows his transgressions. They weighed heavily upon him. Despite the fact that he had been distant from God for months, he knew what they were. That is to say, he didn't run away from them. He faced them head on. He says at the end of verse 3, his sin was ever before him. It was crushing him. One of the ways that we know that we are a son or daughter of God is whether or not our sin bothers us. We should be relatively frightened when sin stops bothering us. If we can get to the point that sin doesn't seem like a really big deal, at being prideful, arrogant, selfish, unloving, greedy, lustful, or a host of other things, if those things stop bothering us, there is a problem. Either our hearts have grown so cold and hardened toward God that we have insulated ourselves, our hearts have scabbed over, or perhaps an indication, it's an indication that, that we really don't take sin seriously at all and therefore we aren't really children of God. A psalm like this calls us to self-examination. The apostle says this in Philippians chapter 2 where he says that we are to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. That is to say we are to examine ourselves. Paul says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians that we are to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. Once we are declared not guilty, once we are justified, this cannot be taken away. But we are to... As I've already said today, once we've been regenerated, always be characterized by repentance. That, that should characterize this assembly. David was honest. He was thorough. So we should be thoroughly honest about our sins. Notice in the end of verse 6 that David says that he needs God to teach him wisdom in the secret heart. It seems a little perhaps obscure. I think David means by this that God's law had to inform the way that he thought. It had to give him eyes to see. That is to say, left to ourselves, trusting these deceitful hearts, 
we will go the wrong way. We will not look at the world rightly. Instead, we must look at the world for what it is. We must look at ourselves and be honest about who we are. Our minds must think biblically. We must think after God's thoughts. We must look at things the way God looks at them. How do we do that? How do we have the mind of God, the mind of Christ? How? We must know His Word thoroughly. This is one of the reasons, very practically, that we teach verse by verse through the Bible. We don't, we don't skip anything. Because we want to know as much as we can. We, we want to honor God in the way that we look at the world, in the way we see ourselves. And therefore, we need His Word to form the fabric of our thinking. This is Paul's argument in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. He says to them, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, this Roman church, by the mercies of God, everything he said in chapters 1 through 11, God is merciful, therefore, you should present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And notice what he says in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How do you discern what is good or what is bad? What is according to God's law or what is a breaking of God's law? You need to know what he thinks about it. And where do you find that? In his word. In Hebrews chapter 4, the apostle says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We don't know who wrote this, but whoever wrote it, wrote it well. The word of God exposes what is inside of us. And that is why the psalmist can say, In Psalm 119, how can a young man or any man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Therefore, the Psalms and the rest of the scriptures are essential, irreplaceable in our daily sojourn. We live in a world that makes up its own rules, particularly our culture. It's happening at a rapid rate. Our culture is making up seemingly crazy cultural norms. The world seems upside down. And increasingly, as the people of God, we are going to seem passe. We are going to seem out of step. It seems weird for Christians to stand up for sexual ethics. It seems odd for Christians to refuse to be dishonest in the workplace. It seems odd for a husband not to put down his wife when his buddies are doing the same. It seems strange when you are tender with your children, when your neighbors are harsh and inflexible. From a positive point of view, it seems weird to give a percentage of your money back to kingdom work when your neighbors are on their boats or on vacation. It seems odd to be faithful to your wife for decades when your brothers at work are going to strip clubs on business trips. Examples abound. 
But God is clear in his word and what he expects for good and what is bad that is to be avoided. God's word sets our minds right. And as we know the word of God, we're able to be honest about our sins because we know it's true. And again, because of Jesus, because he is the one who intercedes for us, we don't have to pretend to be righteous. We can be honest about what is real and what's going on. Because of all this, in verses 7 through 12, we may humbly anticipate restoration and renewal. David asks in verse 7, purge me with hyssop. When a person was sick, in particular, really, really sick and diseased, like a disease like leprosy, and would come to the priests, they had been healed. If the leprosy was gone, they would take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in water and symbolically kind of dip it over the top or sprinkle the, the water onto the former leper to signify that the priest realized and certified that this person was now cleansed from his disease. David asks for that kind of symbolic cleansing. Give me heavenly washing. Take away my dark transgressions which have soiled my soul and make me white as snow. He asks that restoration will come, that joy will come back. If we are far from God, if we have not been consistent and honest in our repentance, joy and gladness will be removed. We were made to be in proper connection, proper relationship with the Creator. When we fail to live that way, joy and gladness are withheld from us. Not because God is mean, but because He doesn't want us to grow accustomed to living apart from Him. You were made to find your deepest joy in God. If you have come to him by receiving the righteousness of Jesus, he will not let you get away with anything less. It can seem at times when we are far from him that our very bones are out of joint. Seemingly, David couldn't even sleep. And Nathan, in his courageous boldness, Something, frankly, that could have gotten him killed confronts David and his sin. And David relents and comes back to God and begs God for restoration. And he knows that he will receive it. He asks that his heart will be clean, verse 10, and he asks that his spirit will be rightly renewed. He asks that he'll once again be in proper relationship to God as a son. And he asks that God's spirit will restore to him the joy of his salvation. So we may humbly anticipate restoration and renewal. If we will plead for forgiveness, we'll be honest about what we have done, God will give us restoration and renewal. Verses 13 through 17, we should use our failures to help others. David was honest about his sin. We know that because he wrote this. This became a national lament a national psalm of repentance. As great a leader as David was, David was known for this sin. David was honest about it. David didn't hide from it. And David used his failure to instruct others. Therefore, we can be honest in our relationships, individually, even publicly. We can be honest about who we are and what we have done. And in doing so, 
We can help lead others away from the same offenses or to repentance if they have committed the same offenses. So I say to you, be honest about who you are and what you have done. In doing so, you may lead others away from the same offenses, and you may lead a brother or sister to repentance by your transparency. You can only be transparent, as I've already said today, if you believe that your righteousness is in Jesus. And in doing so, then you can be thoroughly objective and honest about who you are and what you have done. And perhaps this might be a tangible act where you recognize very publicly who you are and what you have done, that you don't hide from it, you don't cover it up, which was, if we're being honest, much of David's failure. The stacking of sin upon sin was David's desire to cover up who he was and what he had done. The truly penitent heart that has received the forgiveness of God will do the opposite. And lastly, in closing, verses 18 through 19, we must lead lives in keeping with our favored position. David asks for national renewal. Because of David's sin, the nation suffered. David asks for forgiveness. And then David says that then and then alone can they live rightly. The burnt offerings, the sacrifices, are not what saved them. The coming of Jesus as the perfect sacrifice was the only hope of Israel, the only hope of the world. But sacrifices were a symbolic way of them showing that their faith was in God. These were acts of tangible worship. Your acts of tangible worship, coming to church on a Sunday, going to small group, reading your Bible, praying, serving the poor... Those things mean nothing if they're not coming from a right heart. But coming from a right heart, God accepts them. And so therefore, we are to lead lives in keeping with our favored positions as sons and daughters. In other words, after we have been restored through repentance, we are to lead lives in keeping with our identity. As those who have been rescued by Christ, as those who have been renewed to God, we are to live that way. We are to lead new lives. Turn with me as we close to John 13. We spent time together today around the table. The table is a reminder that Jesus is our perfect sacrifice. Most of you are relatively familiar with this story. Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. He comes to Peter. Peter says, you can't wash my feet. Whether this was true humility or an act of false piety, we do not exactly know. But Jesus says to Peter, if I don't wash you, you don't have any part with me. So then Peter says, I want you to wash all parts of me, verse 9. And Jesus says to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. That is to say, if I have washed your feet, it's an example that I accept you, save Judas, of course, here, who will be the betrayer. But even if you are clean, even if you've been born again, even if you're properly related to the Father through me, still you will need consistent cleansing. And therefore, no matter what state you find yourself in today, I call you to a life of regenerate repenting. If you are born again, if you are a son or daughter of God, your life, my life, should be characterized by consistent repentance. Psalm 51 gives us a voice. 
I hope that this will be helpful to you in practical ways. There are ways that we elders here can come alongside you, whether it's something big or something small, whether it's something recent or a compendium of long, unrepented of sin. Let us, let us help you. We will help you come to Jesus in repentance. May God be pleased with our humble hearts. He has given us Christ. Our confidence is in Him and Him alone, and I call you to come to Him today in faith and repentance. Let's pray now. Father, we plead with you to cleanse these soiled hearts, hearts full of iniquity, selfishness, greed, pride, and a host of other things. We ask that you will restore to us the joy of our salvation. And as we live this way, may we instruct others to to relate to you likewise. We pray that you will help us to lead lives in keeping with who we are in Christ and that you will show us your great favor. So help us, your people, to be properly related to you. We are grateful to you that you are faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, whether big or small. So I pray for us, your people, that you will lead us to consistent repentance, that you will be pleased with our lives, that we will love you by living for you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus.